So welcome to episode six of the Six Sales podcast. Uh, for a company called Six Sales, uh, the sixth episode feels very special. Um, and I would like to mark the occasion with a massive, massive welcome to Joe Gregory, who is um, former Cara and former Havas, who will be joining Six Sales later this month as client director. We're so excited to have her. She's going to help us to really elevate the people-shaped marketing that we deliver on behalf of our clients. So Joe, if you're listening, you better be listening. If you're listening, uh, welcome. We're really excited to have you. Um, so today, um, we're going to be speaking to Liam Brennan from Mediacom. And um, when we talk to people uh, like Liam uh, about sales and marketing, typically we are talking about um, uh, sales and marketing in the context of our clients and how they attract their audiences. And obviously, that's our job. And that's very important. And um, we absolutely um, should speak about all of that good stuff. But I'd just like to start today with a slightly different um, lens and have a bit more of an introspective view about our industry. Um, I'm not going to use words like unprecedented or um, new normal or anything like that thus forward. Um, but it is obviously, um, it's been a year and a half already, uh, and we're only uh, in September. So um, I just wanted to sort of step back and just uh, have a conversation about how it's affected the sales and marketing within our industry. Um, so um, historically, uh, the advertising and media and ad tech uh, industries have been very face-to-face -face driven. Um, a lot of uh, people in sales and marketing that are very relationship um, focused. Um, so, you know, uh, lunches and dinners and events and things like Demexco would have been this month and is now, you know, online and Mobile World Congress or hundreds of thousands of people go to Barcelona cancelled. Uh, all of the different IAB events and, uh, you know, you name it, it's all gone. Uh, and, and we're all sat at home uh, working from various different rooms, um, trying to connect to each other via Zoom and other technology. Um, so on that note, um, I'd like to welcome today's guest, Liam Brennan. Um, Liam's worked in both Australia and London for um, best part of 15 years, as far as I can tell, um, at many different media agencies, including CARA, Aegis Media, Starcom, MEC. And today, uh, Liam is the Global Director of Innovation at Mediacom. So um, on that note, Liam, welcome to the Six Sales Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. And uh, all this talk about trips to Barcelona and Cologne is making me uh, feel a little bit uh, sick for 2019. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I can totally relate to that. Do you know, it got to about my third Mobile World Congress and I thought I'm really glad I'm not going yeah. um, to the fourth one because they are pretty full on and they tend to be uh, exhausting uh, experiences. Uh, but now I kind of miss it a little bit because, yeah. um, you know, you always miss what you don't have, right? And I think when all face-to-face -face communications were snatched away from us, um, suddenly you kind of would do anything to be on uh, uh, in the W Hotel at, uh, in Barcelona. I'll have, to, I'll have to be trips to Slough in the meantime, I think. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, but it's great yeah, to be here and great to chat. Or my, on my previous uh, office was in Stains. I would I would give my left arm to, to, to go and have a face-to-face -face meeting in Stains, I think. <laughs> um, so thanks for thanks very much for your time, Liam. It's really, uh, really good of you to, uh, to come on and have a conversation with us today on this very special episode, the sixth episode for Six Cells. Um, it occurs to me that while you and your day job is obviously talking about the marketing for your clients and how you can help them to reach their audiences, there's um, there's a huge sort of marketing challenge 
that this um, lockdown and lack of face-to-face has presented with the industry as a whole. So while um, you know, uh, you're at Mediacom, you're at one of the largest, if not the largest, um, media agency in the UK, you are a client for hundreds, if not thousands, of media owners and networks and vendors and various other uh, types of business. I just wondered, um, how have you seen the communications from those suppliers um, and how has that changed since um, kind of March time this year? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question because um, we've, we've sort of been on, I suppose, a, um, a slow sort of transition anyway, largely to sort of a more uh, digitally led um, uh, connection with, with the sort of uh, suppliers and partners we work with, largely because a lot of them can come from anywhere in the globe now, not just the UK. Um, but it's never really been the same as having face-to-face contact. I think when you look through Twitter at the moment, lots of people are talking about the, the, the great things about working from home. Uh, there is certainly a lot of great things about working from home, but one thing is for sure, you can get a lot more done in a face-to-face meeting. You can convey a lot more emotions uh, face-to-face. Um, and I think it's just nice to physically see people and interact with people. So um, losing a lot of those connections during the pandemic has been difficult. We've, I think it's especially difficult for businesses that haven't got an established relationship already in place with an agency. So um, when you're working with a big agency like ours, there are a lot of companies that we do a lot more business with than others, as you'd expect. Um, certainly we look at sort of the big, the big uh, digital networks like Google and Facebook and Amazon. Um, you know, it's just shifted from a physical relationship to a virtual one, and we know them fairly well. You lose a bit of that contact. But if you're trying to get your foot in the door, it's exponentially more difficult. I mean, one of the other things that's really, and you mentioned this before, Mike, that we're really missing out on, I certainly felt that a couple of weeks ago with a great article by Paul Govins, another guy that works in ad tech, about this, is we've lost a lot of the conferences. And um, you know, even though it's nice to travel to Cologne and Barcelona and, and Las Vegas, things like that, that's where a lot of these connections happen, these sort of happy accidents and run-ins. And we don't have them anymore. And I think because of that, we're suffering a little bit and that we're working more with the same people we used to work with and not really discovering um, what's new out there and new partners we could be working with. So virtual virtual connections can open more opportunities for people that might not be able to walk through our office doors and have a meeting. But at the same time, I think it's also sort of choking that ability to really connect with people um, and sort of convey your business challenges, understand more about what they're offering. Um, and also differentiate yourself from what's what's out there in the market. Yeah, that's that, I think that's a really important point. So if we take up the um, the challenge of a, a perhaps lesser known uh, supplier, um, so you, you've got your Googles and your Facebooks and uh, your Amazon, and as you say, you, you know the people fairly well. You can connect via Zoom, and, and, and it's kind of business as usual. But if you were a publisher that perhaps is less represented uh, represented in the agency. Um, I can imagine your inbox must be a pretty scary place um, at times. How would you? Um, how are people trying to get your attention, um, and how effective is that? In a so let let I mean I, I don't know if you want to put a number on it, but I would imagine you must be getting at least a hundred emails a day on average. Yeah. Um, and if that's the case, um, 
if you were working a 10 hour day, you would have to open 10 an hour um, and read 10 an hour, which is unsustainable because you have a day job, of course. So how are how are companies that perhaps don't have a very strong relationship with the agency um, managing to get that attention um, at the moment yeah. or not? Case maybe. I think, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, yeah, we, we, we are drowning in emails. And actually, I'd say email volume has increased significantly um, since the pandemic started. Uh, we, we, we've shifted all of our internal conversations to um, Teams and WhatsApp and things like that, which I'm amazed that more people hadn't done before. So that's easy email box a little bit, but still it's a problem. I think I have a problem called like publisher follow-up. So I have about 150 emails I've not responded to. So if anyone's listening, I apologize. Um, it, it, it's very hard to cut through because actually I think the more generic connections there are, the harder it is for the right things to make noise, uh, the right, right companies to make noise. Um, the, 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 the tips I've always given to people, um, and there's obviously some complex relationships with an agency you have to work through, but um, it's always been the connections that I, I seem to reply to if it's not a brand I've heard of or a company I've heard of, is just understand more about what I do at the company, who I'm working with, and the particular challenges I might be facing, and how your company can overcome that. And you know, as a business, you know, we, we, we market ourselves to our clients. We have to sell ourselves. And what always works really well is coming in and saying, you have a particular problem or an opportunity, and it's costing you this much money, or it's impacting your business in such a way. Um, and this is what we do, and we can help you with that. So come and have a chat to us. And so many companies just send very generic emails they just say, you know, we've got this ad network or we've got this piece of tech and it does this. And we get lots of emails claiming they're the best, they're number one, they've got some sort of unique technology, and it just all becomes samey. And it's particularly, it's becoming a particular problem because a lot of companies use lead generation uh, emails now. And you, they're on LinkedIn and, and our emails doing the same thing. And they just hammer you every couple of days with a sort of the same email over and over again. And it yeah. just makes you hate them all, <laughs> but also yeah. part of the cut through as a as a as a um, an interesting company. So top tip: don't use auto generated emails. I don't know who actually responds to them; they never seem to work. But definitely that element of personal connection, understanding you, you know, it's it's one step ahead of the competition. It's always worked particularly well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the personal connection, um, the, the tagline of Six Sales is people shaped marketing. So definitely that definitely resonates with me. It's interesting that. And I don't want this to appear like I'm hating on automation because I'm not. But um, the, the industry standard open rates for automated emails is about 20%, um, which, of course, means that 80% aren't even opened. And I, I can't think of anything else that we do that we would accept an 80% failure rate on and continue to do it. It's um, it's staggering to me. Um, and if you're in a – I mean, I, I, I'm kind of – I'm going to put this question to you, Liam, but – if you're opening up your inbox and you've got hundreds of unread email in there, I'm assuming that your eyes are drawn initially to your boss <laughs> and your clients yep. um, and then the people that you know well. And then anything after that, you're kind of fighting for um, you're fighting for attention in a in a in a in a, in a you know, pool with diminishing returns. Yeah. Um, and if you've got. Um, yeah, you know, almost. I I I feel that these automated emails that aren't opened are almost working against each other to make attention even harder to get. Because if your inbox is being flooded by a hundred different vendors with an automated message that you're never going to read, it just makes it even harder for everyone to stand out, right? So, exactly. 
perhaps I, you probably you maybe never even thought of this process, but could you just talk us through how you how you do view your inbox and how you decide what is worth opening and what isn't? Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've got my inbox. Uh, I'm using Outlook. Um, thankfully, not Lotus Notes anymore. <laughs> using Outlook, uh, I sort by date. Um, but yeah, I think Mark, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Actually, where how I look at my email boxes, I I look for um, well, clients first um, uh, most of the time, um, unless it's the big no, the big bosses up top, and I might pay more attention to it. Um, I, I kind of sort by client. I look for the headlines that are. Uh, so subject lines should say that are sort of call out more of an emergency. We usually use like emergency flags that often in emails, and usually those that do usually aren't an emergency. Uh, we keep an eye for client emails, headlines that make sense, subject lines that make sense, uh, and then I will usually action those that are more urgent now. And if they're to do later, I'll just leave them to another time and I can come back to them. I walk yeah. out. Uh, times in my day, and this I think is something I've had to do a lot more of during the pandemic. Times for me to sort out emails and contact people. Most things tend not to be urgent, and I can delay them. Um, yeah. Usually, if it's an internal request, they'll usually not be urgent. Um, but it's, I, 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 I try not to respond to everything that comes through because usually, when we respond, something comes back again, and then there's more work to do. So I'm, I think I'm one of the ones that would prefer to pick up the phone to someone a lot of the time and have a conversation to keep my email box down, get more clarity on what's happening. But certainly for me, uh, resellers, publishers are usually like the bottom of the list for me, um, yeah. apart from the odd like internal distribution email about like an upcoming webinar or something like that. Okay. So... Typically, um, like a reseller or a network or a publisher might have a monthly newsletter or something that they send out. Um, how how useful are they in, in, you know, if we're going to be brutally honest, how useful are they and how often are you going to open and read those those types of automated sent to everyone type messages? Mm-hmm. And I suppose the second part of that question, you mentioned earlier, um, know a little bit about what you do at the agency and who you're working with. Mm-hmm. Um which to me again is people shaped marketing. It's um, it's Mike Nicholson reaching out to Liam Brennan. It's not uh, Six Cells reaching out to Mediacom. And so, how can I personalize? And I don't mean automated personalization. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can I write? Just sit down and and write you a note about something that mm-hmm. might be of interesting to you. And then that, then of course my my subject line can be specific to you yeah. rather than um, generic. I mean, do you find? I find, and I don't know if you feel the same. When I'm looking through my inbox, and I, I'll get nowhere near as many emails as you, um, just because of our sort of relative position in, in the world, but um, I, I can see by the headline that this has been sent to hundreds, if not thousands, of people, mm. and I'll delete it straight away. I'll just go, I don't need to read that. Um, yeah. do, you, do you find that you could almost get a sixth sense from the subject that this isn't actually aimed at me? Yeah, 100%. Um, I'll, start, I'll start with your second line of questioning first and come back to the newsletter one. Um, so, I mean, this, I've just opened my email box now just to kind of scan through and just see what's in, in there as sort of some examples. And, you know, half of my Outlook screen is taken up by the message. I've got sort of an auto open. Um, and I'd say roughly a quarter of the screen are the emails in my inbox to read. Um, I'm, I'm a filer, so I like to delete emails rather than kind of keep my inbox um, unclean. Which I, I don't know how people handle that, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sort of inbox zero person. But that right. subject line becomes very important to grab attention um, for me, really. Like if you have an like, introduction 
uh, yeah, your subject line or something very basic, it's very unlikely I'll click on that first, particularly for someone whom I don't know. Um, yeah. it, it, it's really like like any good ad, really. It's it's like the killer tagline. It's the way you grab someone's attention, um, and you know, pe- we, when we look at how we advertise brands and where we buy media, you know, you look at spaces like Out of Home. Um, there's a very big difference between a tagline that you'll get placed on a large billboard driving down um, you know, the M1 versus the copy you see on the tube platform, which tends to be longer because you're dwelling there for a couple of minutes and you've got mm. time to read it. Whereas if you're driving in your car or you're, you're driving past a billboard, uh, you know, a six-sheeter on a poster, copy tends to be five words, six words or less. Lands what you're trying to sell, gets your attention, you want to know more. Because really what you're trying to do is Let's so it's really get someone to open your email and read it. And if you can have something that you know is going to appeal um, to someone, uh, that that's usually the best way to get them to open. And then let your email be yourself. Um, a lot of people uh, recently have been doing. I think I think a pretty good job actually on this is like following up on both email and LinkedIn. Um, and it's a nice way to get around the, uh, the I guess the restrictions put on you by what you can do in Outlook. I think I, I, I personally check my emails in my LinkedIn less frequently than my email, obviously, and I'm a bit slow to respond. But often that can be a really nice way to make a kind of double connection with someone, not being too annoying. I think some people, yeah. like yesterday morning, I had a guy uh, send me eight LinkedIn messages in half an hour, and I yeah. was instantly like, mate, back off. I tried yeah. to name check like Kelly Clark, who's the old CEO of Group M, who sort of left a couple of years ago. And like, he doesn't obviously doesn't know the business very well. So that, that's a nice way to kind of get in. And I think when it comes to newsletters, it's slightly different. But the newsletters, there are some that I've actually subscribed to and then some that have been forced upon me. And, you know, you, I'm, I don't know if it's GDPR compliant or not, but whenever I'm interacting with a publisher, I'm sort of into automatically at their newsletter list. Um, I, I subscribe to newsletters that I, I know from people who I trust and respect and listen to their opinions on. Um, so I'm always actively looking for them because I know they're going to have this stuff in there. And when it comes to publisher ones, it's the same, same situation. If they're brands that I know um, or their content that I know is going to be useful for me, I'll keep an eye out for those. If it's a generic 11 o'clock on a Tuesday newsletter, which just seems to be like everyone will always have the same strategy, right? So best practices everyone follows. And Tuesday morning, 11 o'clock, I seem to get about six newsletters uh, at the same time. Um, it's close, a lot of the time that, that kind of goes in the bin. I think you, you need to understand, unless you're a brand or something that, uh, a brand that's well-known or a newsletter that people often opt into, um, understand where there might be times when the audience you're speaking to is more likely to read uh, and engage with what you've sent across. So I'm always amazed how little, for example, um, newsletters are sent out on a Friday morning. Now, Fridays tend to be my, my uh, quietest day. Um, of the week, it's often where I get um, time to read through emails I've been putting off. Tuesday is often the busiest one. Monday is status day. Tuesday is the actual hard slog day. Lots of client calls. Yeah. And if you are able to understand more about the people you're selling to and how their days fluctuate, um, and, and also what market they sit in as well is important. Uh, don't assume that everyone sits in the UK or the US. Then you'll find the perfect time to engage them. Uh, and then also, you know, harassing them for not responding in a couple of days is never a good look. It's usually not because you're being ignored because they're busy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. That's good advice. Thank you for that. Um, personally, I, I had a really great sales trainer uh, in a previous job um, by the name of Jeff Hoffman. A little shout out for Jeff there. Um, and he had two sayings, which I think are really 
really key with email. One of them was show me, you know me. Um, and another one was why me and why me now? And if you can communicate those things um, in your headline and then moving on to the body copy, then I think you've probably got a lot bigger chance um, of you know getting something opened than if it's generic and it's one, one subject line that's sent out to thousands of people. Um, because I think maybe in the in the early days of automation, I think perhaps we, you know we were quite new to it. But I think we can smell it a mile off now, and we can yeah. see that this isn't for me. This is just a a mailer. And if you're really busy, of course, mailers don't tend to be um, you know high on your priority of uh, yeah. of of uh, you know f- from a reading point of view. Yeah, it's a, I sorry, virtual virtual podcasting. Sorry. <laughs> Go for it. No, don't, I, I, I was going to say from a, from a from a branding perspective, it's also a really bad look. So yeah. I noticed that the most automated emails are sent out by usually tech companies, especially American ones. Sorry, the American listeners. Um, but if you don't, if you haven't got the time to bother writing you know, slight, even slightly personal email or finding out a little bit about the company, then what does that say about you as a company? And how much rigor you put into actually the work you do for that company. And I think that, 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 that's, for me, it's come out of a culture of, you know, that kind of growth hacking and leads at all cost, um, way of working. But, you know, the, the best relationships are deep and they're the ones where you understand what the other person needs and you provide services that person wants. And writing an email shouldn't be a hard amount of a lot of work, really. It's just typing letters on a keyboard. Obviously, there's a lot of thinking yeah. that gets into it. If you can't be bothered taking the extra, say, five minutes just to do a little bit of background reading on the company and the um, and the person you're emailing, then how would I trust giving you know tens of thousands of dollars of my clients' budgets for you to look after? Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I mean, the way we work with our clients at Six Cells is we is we we look at a content strategy. So this is perhaps the three pillars that your company should be talking about, and these are the topics that sit under those pillars. And a lot of that, um, what I would call more general marketing um, information, is sent um, through consistent LinkedIn updating across all of your client-facing people, not just the um, not just the marketing team. Um, as Rory Sutherland, who's actually the guest on my podcast next week, very excited, I've got a bit of a man crush on uh, Rory Sutherland um, in a purely professional way. You understand, but. Um, he um he talks about marketing as a mindset and i think that's brilliant um too often especially in in sort of ad tech and publishing we have a marketing department of a couple of people and they do the marketing and everybody else doesn't which is crazy because um let's just take linkedin as an example um the average person has 900 first degree connections on linkedin um that means that they're sec if everyone was average and everyone only had 900 first degree connections uh, the power of compounding and the six degrees of separations means that your second degree network jumps up to 810,000 people. So what we do is we we train and enable companies to um, to be able to empower all of their people to communicate on a regular basis, um, the, the more general stuff. And then exactly what you said, um, Liam, it's now writing you a very personal, specific note about something that I need to tell you about because it's pertinent to one of your clients. Um, and then, then that's when you can start writing headlines that actually, you know, perhaps appeal rather than um, yeah. sort of vanilla and eleven o'clock on a Tuesday morning type uh, grade. So yeah, I think that's really, really, uh, really important stuff. On that note, 
What does um, a global director of innovation do um, uh, sort of on a, on a day-to-day basis, mate? Uh, so my main, my main role is working on a team that I helped set up called Blink, uh, where I think we want to sum it up very briefly. It's almost like a digital transformation consultancy with a media call. Um, but mainly what I'm doing is I'm working with Mediacom's clients, sometimes wider WPP clients, um, helping them understand how they can move their business forward by looking at the disruption caused by digital, sort of holding my hands up and doing the, the quote marks here, um, and also the opportunities presented by digital. Um, we... I've traditionally sort of more looked at actually what's coming next, but certainly in the last six months, I've been looking at what's happening now and how people can navigate that. So for me, it's um, talk about client relationships and understanding businesses. That's actually quite key because you need to understand what's going on uh, with the client, the business troubles they're facing. Uh, and you know, when it comes to, say, personal contacts, you know, I do often work with publishers still on a day-to-day basis because I work in a media agency, but I'm, I'm always on the lookout uh, for more interesting companies doing different things in different spaces uh, and often feels that maybe I don't have particular expertise in, um, okay. you know, and, and therefore for me, uh, part of the key part of the job is trying to make the right connections that I can then take to clients and navigate sort of projects with them and that partner to move forward. So, so how, how does that, um, how does that all structure together within the agency? So you've got, obviously you've got client teams looking after individual clients. Do they, when do they sort of put the hand up and think we need to get Liam involved in this or is it the other way around? You go to them and say, right, I've, I've found this really cool tech company doing something that's, um, you know, that, that's quite disruptive and yeah. um, potentially going to help our clients. And so you should consider it. Is it or is it a mixture of the both? How does that, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mixture of both, really. Um, certainly when I started out doing that, so I've been in Minicom for about five and a half to six years now. I started setting up this team about three and a half years ago. And very much at the start, because like, like building a new business, no one's going to come to you, you have to go to them. So I had to reach out to people within my organization and start sort of pitching out our services and what we could offer and the difference we made. And often that was lacking in case studies. Um, you know, we had we had one one or two base clients that were quite good. One was a, was a big brand uh, that we worked with. But, you know, we were having conversations. You had to, like, you know, pitch to a luxury team when you were selling pet food. Uh, and that was a tricky one. So at the start, it was very much about reaching out. Over time, credibility has grown. Knowledge of my team has grown with the business. And so a lot of people didn't come to me for that help. But certainly, you know, as more people come into the business, people, you know, there's always churn, especially in advertising agencies. The sort of lifespan is usually like maybe two to three years for most people. You know, you have to go in and tell people what you do and the services you offer and uh, always up against, you know, a changing marketplace. So um, definitely during the pandemic, times um i've actually probably reverted more to selling again internally um because some people have been reaching out but because you're not you're having those sort of hallway conversations like you used to um you definitely have to stay on people's radar and be present um and and do it in a kind of virtual sense yeah do you find the number of meetings that you have has reduced because they only get put in now if they're essential um very much no uh it has been meeting help uh my days have got much longer my ability to actually do work is reduced i think lots of people like to have meetings that don't really need to be meetings they should just be normally that five minute chats over a coffee in the kitchen um but certainly when it comes to being introduced to new people i'd say it's decreased and that's a bit disappointing because i think and I, i definitely need to take a lot of blame for this I've been prioritizing my clients' work 
uh, and my own internal work, which I guess makes sense because they're the ones paying the bills and keeping the lights on. But because of that, I don't have much time to, to learn and to do new things. I don't think, in all honesty, that I've actually met as many companies I would like in the last six months. You know, you would go to, to De Mexico, which would be happening now in Germany, and I'd have a good two or three days to, you know, potentially put some business to the side for a bit and just absorb and learn and meet. And obviously, you know, have a couple of steins of beer along the way, but, you know, that's how you interact with people. And it's yeah. much harder to do that. And I think it's it's something that I'm, I guess, a little bit worried about coming up in the next six months is that, you know, we talk about a K-shaped recovery uh, at the moment where some people have benefited a lot and some people have, have lost out. And I think those relationships that were established before the pandemic, they're getting a lot more business because it's much easier just to maintain contact. And for those businesses that aren't necessarily had their foot in the door before, it's becoming much more difficult. And those are the ones that I'm really interested in, is that the people that are trying to really start something new, do something different, and often maybe they don't have particularly good um, ways of selling themselves, they're not that experienced at it, it's not their forte, and therefore I'm missing out on seeing some of those companies and meeting those people. Yeah. Yeah, so, in, I mean, in, in terms, I, I agree with you. I think I, I would be worried if I were, if I were relying on, uh, selling my wares via media agencies and I was yet to have like any sort of um, credibility built up it must be a pretty tough place to try and get attention as we've kind of already um, mm. alluded to with the uh, the inbox hell and, uh, and and the amount of stuff that you know that, that people are trying to put in front of you mm. in terms of innovation then um, what have you seen that you're quite excited about what what um what are the big trends that you're seeing that, uh, that, you're, that you're most excited about at the moment? Or are there any individual companies you wanted to shout out? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, so there's a number of different things that have been interesting. I mean, I think the, the pandemic has been a great accelerator of innovation in market. And I think what I'm actually most excited by is stuff that I don't know about yet. Uh, a lot of the great companies that have existed now, the, the, the digital companies that are so massive now, a lot of them were really born out of the, the recession of 2008-2009 when um, yeah, there was a lot of cheap capital flying around the end of that, but also there was a sniff of opportunity where a lot of established businesses that you know, maybe weren't particularly cash-rich had gone under. Um, I, I did a lot of work with Airbnb about five or six years ago when they were doing their first campaigns in the UK, which is coming. I, I still love to this day. I think they're brilliant. They popped up sort of around 10 years ago, sensing an opportunity around a sort of deflated real estate market. Um, and sort of, you know, that was a great way for people to invest in buying property that lease out Airbnb, which maybe hasn't been great if you're trying to buy a house, but, um, you know, for their business, it's been fantastic. So I think there'll be, there'll be a lot of companies that will emerge in the next 12 to 24 months um, that I think will lay the groundwork for the next 10 years. There, there hasn't been a great deal of big, new, interesting companies come out in the last five years because it's hard to sort of break through um, with monopolies and duopolies and things like that. But certainly I think during the pandemic, seeing the growth of uh, virtual entertainment, I think has been the one for me that's been the most exciting. Um, obviously, I, know, I, I, I love and hate virtual calls <laughs> in, in equal measure, but to see you know, the, the quality of things like Zoom and Teams you know, becoming something that is you know, video conferencing becoming somewhat normalized for good or bad and the technology around it is, is fascinating. It's making work. Um, it's debatable whether it's making it better, but it's certainly making it more flexible. And I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah. seeing, seeing the growth of some of the streaming opportunities as well. I mean, I, 
I, I do work on a client that's a competitor of this, but like you know, Disney Plus, I, I snapped that up the day it came out. I love Disney Plus. Um, great content on those streaming platforms, but also things like Twitch. Uh, the growth of some of those, you know, gaming, seeing gaming grow on, on terrestrial television. I think for the consumer, a lot of this will be a big win in the future because they're getting a greater variety of things to do and things to watch. And certainly along the way, people have been trying things that they hadn't tried before because what they normally did wasn't available. Um, and yeah, they probably say necessity is the mother of all invention, don't yeah. they? So, um, yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing that. A lot more, I think, yeah, e-commerce linked as well, like grocery shopping online, things like that. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's a, the, the pandemic will be a great accelerant of change. Um, and whilst a lot of it will bounce back to norms because people, you know, some, there's a lot of things people want to do, they can't. Um, having people try on new stuff um, will open up, I think, a new economy around some certain areas. And I think it's um, maybe not this year. I'm quite happy to see the back of 2020, but certainly 2021, 2022, there'll be a lot of, interesting things popping up that I think are worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I listened to a podcast you gave to the Video Ad News uh, site with Vincent over there, um, and you were mentioning, you, you mentioned Twitch just then, um, which obviously exploded. Um, um, you, you mentioned in that, that previous podcast the, um, the mobile gaming space, mm. and um, one of my clients is in that space, so I'm quite interested in it. And it, it's, it's really interesting on uh, to see the huge explosion in time spent and apps downloaded uh, through lockdown as people were just trying to find new ways to entertain themselves. But what I thought, what, what I picked up on, which I thought was quite, um, it's quite a smart point, I think, is you were talking about the, the fact that mobile gaming is essentially um, middle-aged women. Um, that, that, you know, yeah. a huge part of the audience is is mums, essentially. Yeah. Um, yet there's this perception, I think you called it, um, teenage boys uh, <laughs> sipping on Lucas, no, not Lucas, a Red Bull uh, and eating pizza is the perception. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, where perception and reality can be so far apart from each other. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we have this inherent bias, I think, of thinking everyone else is doing the same things we are. Uh, yeah. And it's a particular problem in, in, in media agencies and, and clients who work with them um, if we're spending client budgets, we often don't believe that certain consumption habits mirror our own, therefore they're not true. And yeah. um, certainly gaming has been one of the biggest victims of that because um, I think I would say the average the average sort of media planner buyer is probably in the late 20s, early 30s, I'd say, and have probably missed that generation that's coming up now and doing a lot of gaming. Um, mobile gaming and, and streaming video gaming, very different audiences, but you know, there's a lot of money in this space and people are doing it. Um, and because a lot of the people that we, we have in our inner circles might not be, uh, uh, sorry, people in our inner circles aren't doing it, doesn't mean other people aren't. I think the, big, the biggest giveaway of, you know, the, the amount of money being thrown into that space is you know, it's Facebook, it's Amazon, it's Google. These are the guys that are investing in that space and uh, they know what they're doing and they wouldn't be investing in that space um, if they didn't think there was money to be made there. Yeah, I remember when I was back at the Telegraph. Um, I think it may have been my last agency-facing role. I'm not sure, um, but um, the Telegraph obviously is quite an older, um, traditional, conservative brand. And I remember going in to see um, to, to see agencies and them, them telling me that it was the newspaper that their dad read. You know, <laughs> and it's that, that internal bias again. You're thinking, oh, that's probably not very helpful to my cause um, because it's just like not not a title that um planet buyers at that time would have uh, would have read it it's probably tough if you're a brand that is outside of um 
you know, like the, uh, the, the demographic of an agency. How do you, um, there was um, an interesting uh, furor, I suppose you call it, on LinkedIn recently about um, uh, the ageist comment, um, yeah. apparently, which I don't think was an ageist comment, so I think it was taken out of context. But what do you, how do you, as an agency, try to have a diverse um, sort of section of, ages and genders and races and geographic locations in order to be able to come up with a more um, uh, holistic um, plan um, I mean what does that look like how do you how do you manage that because if everyone you know if everyone's in a similar age group in a similar location and you know um, it, it must be quite difficult to um, to think about what a builder in whole might be thinking for example. It's definitely a challenge, and I think uh, it's something. I mean, I've been doing this for fifteen years. I, I, I don't know if I'm an old timer or not. I'm thirty eight years old, so uh, I, I think I'm young still. I've got no <laughs> chance. <and, you> know. <laughs> I know some people, people around me think I'm getting older now, but the, um, you know, we need to have a workforce in, in advertising and, and marketing that better represents the population we're talking to. Um, one of the most toxic phrases I think in, in, in our industry and probably in others too, I'm sure they use it is like cultural fit. And what 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 exists behind it is potentially right, like what's the right people to work with a certain brand, but often culture fit can be interpreted as being I'm gonna hire someone that's just like me, uh, and get more people in that are just like me. And of course people naturally sort of gravitate, I think, towards people that are like them. They want to, you know, it's easy to make connections, talk to people. But you need to have a different range of uh, backgrounds, a different range of thinking, a different range of ages, specialisms, to not only represent the population you're talking to and understand more about who you're communicating with, but also um, diversity in, in, in people brings a diversity in skill set, and it challenges you to be better. And I think when I, when I came into the industry, it wasn't so monocultural. Uh, I think about 10, 20 years prior, you know, it was very white male, uh, say private schools in Australia, we call public schools in the UK, I guess we call them private Australia, very much that sort of audience, but it's definitely starting to expand. Um, and part of that is some, we've been putting initiatives in place for WPP or with Mediacom to really hire people from outside um, the audience we would normally kind of reach before to get the right people in. There's still a long way to go. And I think that's the, that's the challenge we have now is um, how can we ensure that post-pandemic when maybe the businesses might be in not as good a shape as they were beforehand, we continue to drive that diversity and inclusion agenda and ensure that the talent that we have in our business is heroed. Um, it's still, and I think that's one of the challenges about working virtually is that those with the loudest voices often get the most attention. And within our organization, there's a lot of people that are just brilliant people at what they do, all from different backgrounds. Um, but they don't have that ability to walk up to someone and show them their work. And they might be quite junior people, mid-level people that don't feel empowered to go and talk to someone senior. So definitely feels far more metropolitan, far more AB in audience. I think that is something we really need to work on. But certainly, especially in light of the recent um, political events in the US and the UK and elsewhere in the world, um, really trying to ramp up our efforts in that space. And we've got a long way to go, but we're making some progress. Yeah, great. Do, do you think there's an opportunity there, Liam? Um, with, um, we, I mean, 
media agencies and publishers and everyone pretty much has gravitated towards the big cities mm. because that's where all the business was done. But as remote working looks like it's going to carry on for some people to the end of the year and then, you know, other companies saying that, you know, remote working will be um, an opportunity for people sort of moving forward. Is there perhaps an opportunity for us to um, to hire people in the far reaches of the country that perhaps aren't London and Manchester and a bit of Birmingham, you know, like, you know, maybe down in the West country or up Mm. in Norwich or, you know, just a real subset of people that perhaps live in a very different environment to uh, the ones that we, we work in. Yeah. I mean, we, we, uh, I think, I think so. We, we, uh, I guess some other agencies, we've done a little bit of this, but I I think some agencies have done this a little bit better, but setting up different offices throughout the UK. I mean, we've got pubs in Manchester and Edinburgh and, and, um, we've got an Irish team in Ireland, a different com- country, but like we're trying to sort of diversify our London hub and sort of put strength in other offices. Um, a, because there's great talent pool everywhere in the UK, and there's great universities everywhere in the UK, not just, I mean, there's, there's probably better universities outside London than in London sometimes. Um, but yeah, definitely, I think there's there's great opportunity to build up those offices, also for real estate reasons, like the, the overhead costs of working in London, um, are things that we have, often have to incorporate when we charge our clients you know, renting our offices is hardly as expensive to rent to london and a lot of other agencies have moved their offices out of central london into even the sort of more zones three zone four areas like publicis one of our competitors moved their office from farringdon out to white city which doesn't feel like a huge distance to go but you know the real estate costs in zone three are significantly less than zone one um we we is uh, one thing I've done in a global role, and I think it's sort of break down the stigma of New York and London being the hubs of all things great in advertising. And it's still something that you hear time and time again. Most companies have their global hubs in New York and or London, or maybe both. Ours is more London than New York, just because of the heritage of the company. The great work comes out from all across our network. Um, and my my first role at MediaCom was working on Coca Cola, and my, my job was basically to fly into local markets and help them win pitches and uh, transition the client that they would win it. And I spent time in like, Mexico and Eastern Europe and a lot of time in Southeast Asia as well. And the people in those markets are just as good as the markets in you know the, the people in the UK often or the US. Um, and so, therefore, we really want to empower people from across our network to kind of work on big global business and not have a kind of sea of, of, of uh, British and American people working on businesses. So I think twofold. One, how can we get more of our offices being more impactful, especially when you see most clients actually aren't even based on the based business parks scattered around the UK or they're based overseas. So there's definitely a reason to start up there. But secondly, create more of a, a stronger global network because A, it helps us with our talent pool but also helps us long term as we start to win big clients in other markets you know our growing markets like china india uh that's where new clients are emerging that are global clients and not coming out of london new york anymore yeah right you talk about the global network there yeah. i'm just curious in terms i would imagine that some of the clients that you work for perhaps are on a regional basis so you might only have them in the uk yeah. I, I don't know what percentage of your clients are that you look after globally and and of that percentage, how closely you work with the with the uh, MediaCom offices in, let's say, I don't know, Germany and Italy and France and, and further afield, is it quite a close collaborative effort or or does the, the local media tend to be sort of pretty uh, universally looked after at a local level? Yeah, it's, it's becoming a hybrid model, I think is the best way to answer that. Back, back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I started out, um, media was very local. 
So you'd often have strategic guidance coming out of like a big hub, London, New York, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, guiding people and what they did. Um, and because all TV was usually local, um, local networks, or newspapers, or magazines, I think the growth of digital has homogenized a lot of the world. So you Google, Facebook, your Amazons, you know, it's the same publisher everywhere. So in some respects, there's a greater case for hubbing. So running lots of things out of one market for cost reasons, that you lose a lot of local nuance. But also at the same time, you can have everyone working off the same template and doing great work on those platforms, no matter where they are in the world. So in some cases it's restricted, in some cases it's empowered. Um, I, I think what's particularly interesting in how we run the network, and I think this is one of our big selling points at MediaCom, is that we can't continue to have big hubs anymore and track talent just to those hubs because the growth is coming from elsewhere. Um, it's like APAC, for example, which I find the most surreal name for a region. Three billion people that have been lumped into one big thing. Um, you know, within that market, you have China, which is, you know, it's like Europe on, in and of itself with multiple languages, multiple cities. You know, we have to, we can't manage China out of Singapore. You have to have people in China. And often you have to have Chinese people running them, or, you know, they need to know the language and the culture and the cities they're in. India is going the same way. Um, we have three or four offices, I think four offices now in India, um, with not only specialists in sort of different languages around the country, but also we have, People there that actually can communicate to people that don't, um, that can't read and write English. So, looking after FMCG brands, which are the you know, toothpaste and the, the you know, washing powder and things like that, for the, you know, the poor community to buy that can't read and write English, they need people to know how to market to those who can't read, which is was amazing when I was there. I was like, wow, it's incredible. So, suddenly you start to you start to get those local specialisms, those local nuances, but still that same way of working globally. And allow your talent that is sort of sitting in those markets to start developing their way of doing things that is in line with what we're, where the company is moving to. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, so, just to finish us off, uh, Liam, from an innovation standpoint, um, what do you think we're going to see um, towards the back end of this year? Um, yeah. Can't come soon enough. The end of this year, I think, for many people, and, and, and into next year, what, what do you think the big things from an innovation point of view? Uh, are going to be? What, what should we be looking out for? Yeah, as I said, all the, all the Christmas foods has come out, <laughs> which, is, which is like, great, it's going to end soon. Um, I, I think, um, I mean, the biggest the biggest thing really, and I don't want to end on a grim note, but obviously the, the economy is not in the best place at the moment. And I think when people, uh, I think the, the real change we're going to see is not necessarily the, 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 um, the impact of the pandemic in terms of like us moving around and being able to go to stores and things like that. I think it'll be more financial. And when it, when that happens, like I said before, it's, uh, innovation happens in these sort of darker times sometimes when people find new avenues to, to um, build off something that's happened. And I think the, the um, um, one thing I think that might happen, and I always say whenever I try and predict stuff, I'll get it wrong, but it's the reinvention of retail space. I think the retail, the retail space has been the one that has shown to me the greatest amount of innovation in the last couple of years, and I talked about streaming and things like that before, but real pivots are happening in retail because people are buying more through its e-commerce, and you know there's a lot of overheads in opening the store. Now, will those move change into apartment blocks, or will they become co-working spaces or galleries? Don't know. Um, but certainly, I remember when I moved to London. I moved here in 2008, just after GFC, 
Uh, which was a really dumb idea at the time, but I did it anyway. But the pop-up store revolution sort of started around 2009. Um, East London was cheap rent, um, easy to get a store, they were all shut down, and suddenly that became a good jumping board for London businesses to start up. Cheap rent, short rent, less commitment. Um, and I think we'll probably see a lot of that again. We'll see those empty retail stores, of which sadly there are quite a lot popping up already, even in my local area. Um, but that happening already in the high street, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, it, it? Many high streets around the country were, were struggling, and so this is obviously going to accelerate that for sure. Yeah, and I think like, I had some friends that went to work uh, this week and said, like, it's a complete ghost town around like Euston and King's Cross. So seeing them turn into potentially immersive brand spaces for people to buy online, something's happening a lot. Uh, seeing them turn into co working spaces, um, potentially into entertainment spaces. I think that's that's the real innovation we'll see coming soon. I'm, I'm kind of excited by that. It'd be nice to see some new brands emerge. Amazing. Liam, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, uh, I hope you have a good weekend. I hope you stay safe. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you very soon. But thanks uh, thanks so much for your, uh, your insights today. It's been a pleasure. Great, Mike. It's been great.